informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. As we kick off a new week, thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. Hope you had a good weekend, got all those clocks changed, and you're getting uh, adjusted as well to the new time. And here we go. We'll talk weather with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. And for parts of the country, winter hangs on with uh, another big blast over the weekend and perhaps more coming. We'll talk about that. We'll get a Washington update with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley. Talk tax extenders, RFS, USMCA, and more. And speaking of the RFS, now EPA has handled it. Some new information out late last week. We'll get reaction from Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. All that coming up here on Adams on Agriculture. But glad to kick things off with a look at the news. Joining us from AgriPulse Communications with us today is Spencer Chase. Hi, Spencer. How are you? You know what, Mike? I've been better. Had a had a rough weekend for the jackrabbits. Now I'm sitting here at work uh, with an hour less uh, hour less of sleep. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, we're going to persevere. We're going to pull through. Hang in there. All right. Well, it's National Agriculture Week, so that's a uh, that's uh, going to be a big week. A lot of special activities. You, I know at AgriPulse, you have some special activities next week, but uh, a lot going on with Ag Week. Yeah, it'll be a busy week out here in Washington. There's going to be some folks flying into town uh, just to kind of celebrate the contributions of agriculture to the end, uh, you know, to the country. Really, having events uh, Wednesday and then uh, Wednesday evening a reception, and then on Thursday they have an event at the press club, really uh, highlighting a lot of the different things that uh, the administration is doing, as well as the industry is doing as a whole to kind of promote the advancement of agriculture. Uh, you know, really, really countrywide, and also you know, there's a lot of USDA officials participating. It's usually usually a pretty good event. Well, one thing the administration doing uh, for agriculture that uh, probably will not be celebrated, and that's a proposed budget cut, and it looks like it could hit USDA pretty hard. Yeah, we're certainly expecting that to happen, uh, and, and it's important to keep in mind, whenever we're talking about the administration's budget release, whether it's this administration or any that came previous or any that will come after, I mean, it's, it's really a negotiating document. It's, it's something that uh, they're going to talk about a little bit, and then Congress will actually turn around and write the budget. And so, really, uh, this administration's budget shouldn't be taken uh, too horribly seriously in terms of the actual spending cuts to the Department of Agriculture. It's something where they're going to outline their priorities, and typically, uh, whether it's a Republican or a Democratic administration, the, the budget does include pretty hefty cuts to crop insurance that ultimately don't get enacted because Congress doesn't follow through. Meanwhile, we're hearing from the administration that they plan to kind of get things rolling on USMCA, get the clock started here pretty, pretty shortly. Right, and that's something they're really going to have to get after because, uh, you know, as I'm sure some of your friends north of the border might know, there's a bit of a political scandal going on up there as well. You know, in, in the grand scheme of things, it would kind of be a drop in the scandalous bucket here in the United States that's going on uh, there. But it is something that uh, could potentially shift the, shift the you know, the negotiating leverage of the Canadian administration. And so it's going to be even more important that the United States is able to act and is able to pass that, pass that agreement. That's not exactly going to be a slam dunk. There's going to need to be a, a lot of negotiation, possibly some, some horse trading and some side letters that need to be written in order to uh, gin up enough Democratic support for that deal. But uh, everything we hear is that they're looking at considering that at some point you know, later this summer uh, you know, with, with the hopes of getting that deal finalized before the end of this year because we saw with the Trans-Pacific Partnership what happens when a trade deal can get wrapped around the axle of a presidential election. 
Meanwhile, with China, it seems like we're tapping the brakes just a bit, still waiting to find out when a deal might actually get done. Right, and that's been something that's, you know, I don't want to say it's surprising or, you know, whether it is or isn't surprising, but these are negotiations that take time. And it's important to remember that, you know, the United States is really asking the Chinese to make wholesale changes to the way they do business. And that's not something that's going to happen overnight. That's going to take a lot of negotiating and a lot of uh, a lot of new perspectives that have to be introduced to the Chinese economy for that to happen. And so uh, they they say they're making progress, but not quite to the point where the two leaders need to need to sit down and finalize things quite yet. So we'll wait and see uh, what happens there. But two huge trade issues for sure. What are you hearing on Japan? Any uh, dates set uh, for some talks with Japan? Uh, to my knowledge, there's been no dates quite yet. I think they're moving forward with the intent of obviously negotiating that bilateral. But keep in mind the the administration's trade staffers are, are stretched fairly thin between USMCA, between the China deal. There's a lot of trade things up in the air right now. They The administration continues to say that Japan is a priority. However, uh, nothing quite set in stone just yet. We'll be talking later with Brian Jennings, uh, CEO for the American Coalition for Ethanol, Uh, Some of the information out last week confirming concerns about how EPA has handled uh, RFS and the the, uh, exemptions to it for for small refiners. Uh, This is going to add more fuel to that fire. Yeah, certainly going to add fuel to that fire. You know, it, it just wouldn't be the renewable fuels industry if we weren't talking about another lawsuit getting filed. So <laughs> I don't think there's anything too horribly surprising there. But uh, it is it is important to note that a lot of the concerns that are being expressed were concerns that kind of came to light uh, under previous EPA leadership. And uh, there hasn't been the same level of concern expressed about Andrew Wheeler. Obviously, folks are keeping a watchful eye on the new administrator based on their experiences with Scott Pruitt. But I don't think there's the same level of concern that uh, that there once was under under Scott Pruitt because they feel like uh, Wheeler, you know, who, who's you know, he really cut his teeth as a career staffer at EPA and as a Capitol Hill staffer for the Environment and Public Works Committee, which you know wrote and uh, and oversaw the RFS from Capitol Hill. They think he's a lot more uh, stable in terms of uh, you know implementing that legislation in a way that's consistent with congressional intent and uh, and the law. But there is a high level of concern of whether or not EPA can get uh, E15 approved by this summer. Yeah, yeah, that's something that uh, you know they're they're really going to have to move quickly on this. They they sent the they sent their proposal to the White House Office of Management and Budget for uh, just kind of some interagency review uh, last week, and so that's something. If they're going to get that turned around by June first, they are really going to have to move on that. And it might be to the point where you know, this has been discussed by some USDA officials a number of times. You know, potentially looking at some discretionary enforcement where they uh, they basically choose not to enforce the language of the language of the law that prohibits summertime E15 sales uh, obviously that would uh, be you know that, that would be very ripe for legal challenge should they should they take that route yep so we will see if E15 will be approved for summer sales or not uh, meanwhile one other issue uh, on the immigration front some talk about getting something done to help the ag labor situation what are you hearing there well, we know that there's some efforts underway trying to get folks uh, on board with signing with signing off on immigration legislation. But you know, it's the same it's the same issues that we hear routinely on that subject. Some folks uh, really are looking to do comprehensive immigration reform, and they're not really looking to uh, pass just a piecemeal approach because they see the need for agricultural labor as a good negotiating piece on a broader uh, immigration package. 
And uh, I don't know uh, how, how familiar folks are with the current political climate, but broad immigration reform is going to be a heavy lift on Capitol Hill right now. Uh, there's just not the appetite for that level of bipartisan compromise. And I guess the, the, you know, the silver lining for agriculture is that there is a recognition that this is a problem for them. Folks know that agriculture needs a legal workforce. But in terms of actually getting that legal workforce through legislation, that's a completely different situation. Uh, efforts Everything. remain ongoing. Everything seems to be a heavy lift in Washington these days. All right. Thanks a lot, Spencer. We appreciate it. Yep. Happy to be here, Mike. Spencer Chase with AgriPulse Communications. We'll talk weather next with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. You want to make the most of your wheat crop's yield potential. BASF has a full portfolio of fungicides to help, starting with Preaxor brand fungicide. It gives you early to mid-season disease control, stress protection, and improved growth efficiency, which you need for higher yields. Now combine that with Nexacor Zemium brand fungicide for early to mid-season applications, and you've got disease control that helps deliver healthier, greener leaves longer. And more green means more photosynthesis, more grain mass, and potential yield. Now add in Caramba brand fungicide, and you're getting best-in-class head scab suppression plus control of late-season foliar diseases. That gives you a yield advantage over infected weed acres that are left untreated. The fact is with Preaxor fungicide, Nexacor fungicide, and Caramba fungicide all together in one portfolio, you're covered all the way through harvest. That's a winning combination. For more, ask your BASF representative. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we've changed the clocks. The calendar says next week will be the first official day of spring. But DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson, there are parts of the country where it looks anything but spring-like. Yeah, it's going to be a rough week ahead, Mike. Uh, the Western Plains especially and uh, into the uh, Northern, uh, northeastern plains, northern Midwest, uh, more, more uh, heavy winter uh, conditions are going to be in effect. Uh, looking at possibly a foot of snow in parts of western South Dakota, western Nebraska, even into eastern Colorado, and uh, then some ice and snow for uh, the eastern Dakotas into parts of Minnesota. Uh, so the uh, the trend is not completely uh, going to uh, leave. And uh, and move around yet, or or move to a a wide uh, a, a wide uh, spring type trend just yet for a lot of folks. So a lot of snow in those areas. I know here in Illinois, a lot of rain over the weekend, uh, a lot of mud. Uh, uh, beef producers certainly dealing with that calving time. A lot of mud that they're uh, working through. So uh, it's a it's kind of a a sloppy uh, mid March situation here for this part of the country further south there is some planting getting underway though so we we have quite a mixed bag around the country well there is i i don't know uh how how extensive the uh, field work scenario is in the uh, mid-south and uh maybe in parts of the southeast it's a little bit better um i am looking at quite a few uh you know flood advisories in the river basins of the tennessee valley and then the delta and farther south and we know that the delta is getting rain today uh, talking about flooding, uh, there is uh, a big swath of the central and the southwestern plains 
or flood advisories that are in effect from Tuesday night through Wednesday uh, from uh, the Missouri Valley here in the Omaha area where I am, and then southwest all the way to Dodge City, Kansas, in the Oklahoma line. Uh, so that's a you know that's a big swath of country uh, where uh, flooding is uh, is uh, a pretty high threat because of uh, locally heavy rainfall of over two inches that is likely uh, with this next storm system. And along with that, areas that maybe don't get the uh, rain are going to get uh, very windy. Uh, so there's a, a high wind watch for the entire Texas and Oklahoma panhandle area, and then east all the way to central Oklahoma into uh, south-central Kansas. So this uh, th- this next uh, weather system that moves across is going to pack a big punch uh, with uh, the heavy rainfall, heavy snow, some ice, uh, really adding to this uh, whole prospect of not a whole lot of work getting done and a whole lot of stress definitely building and continuing. I, I don't know when the stress began, Mike. Probably uh, concern started about uh, late January, early February, and it stayed with us all the way uh, through the month of February and now into early to mid-March. And uh, so it's, it's a tough uh, start to the spring season. And then to add to that, as we look down the line a little bit, eventually that snow is going to be melting, and that's just going to add to that flooding situation. Yeah, yeah, the flood threat is very high. I'm just uh, now looking at uh, a graphic that we put out with a uh, blog item last week about the the uh, flood threat. Yeah, there's uh, there's a uh, moderate to a moderate to high risk, or a ri- I should say a risk of uh, moderate to major uh, long-term flooding. All the way from the uh, Red River of the North in uh, the, the uh, eastern part of North Dakota, western Minnesota, all the way south into the uh, Mississippi Delta, and obviously the Missouri River Basin, the the Lower Missouri, uh, the Illinois Basin, uh, the uh, Saint Croix River in Wisconsin. Uh, those are some of the other uh, major systems uh, that that, uh, you know, have this uh, threat. Uh, And then, you know, even uh, farther west into the upper Missouri Basin and the the upper Platte in uh, Nebraska and Wyoming and so forth, uh, there's at least a moderate moderate risk for some some longer-term flooding. Uh, So this this situation with wet ground and and, uh, high water, Man, I mean, it's a big deal, and uh, the southeast is not completely out of the uh, picture either uh, with that type of scenario, along with the Ohio Valley. Uh, again, as, as we mentioned before, uh, going into the 1st of February, soil moisture all the way from, you know, western Kansas, east clear to the Atlantic coast, uh, was in at least the 90th percentile in terms of its volume. And in many areas, uh, the soil moisture volume was at the 99th percentile uh, compared to, you know, a long-term average. So that's just how wet things are. It's, uh, it's remarkable. I don't know that I've uh, seen anything quite like this ahead of a season. I know, you know, we were both around uh, doing our work in 1993 when all the flooding hit and, and that type of thing. But it wasn't quite as wet, I don't think, as uh, then as it is now, ahead of the springtime uh, start to things. 
And it doesn't seem that long ago we were looking at that drought monitor map and worried about the drought spreading across the country. Boy, that seems like a long time ago now. It, it really does. Uh, even in the uh, Four Corners area, you know, where things have been just uh, chronically dry, and last year there were, there were uh, you know, reports of uh, forced uh, sales or forced herd dispersions or at least, uh, you know, herd cutbacks in the southwestern areas of the country because of drought. Uh, that uh, part of the country has even had a big relief, and we know that California's drought is pretty much over with for the time being. Uh, as far as a, a real uh, uh, long-term uh, dry threat, uh, there's a little bit in the desert uh, part of California, the southeastern part, but otherwise uh, drought's pretty well ended. Snowfall's piling up. They're talking about ski season out in the Sierra Nevadas going clear into uh, June, maybe July. Same story in the Colorado Rockies. Uh, so, yeah, there's uh, a lot of uh, wet country going into uh, this the next, uh, you know, number of months now. Talking with DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. All right, Bryce, what about temperatures this coming week? Well, Mike, it's going to be quite varied. Um, over much of the um, western half of the country, it's still going to be below normal. Now, I don't think we're going to see quite the bitter cold uh, that, that we uh, still had during the past weekend in some areas, but it still is going to be quite a bit below average. And then from, uh, let's say, about central Iowa on east, uh, readings are going to actually uh, turn to a more seasonal to above normal track. And uh, from the uh, southeastern U.S., north all the way into the northeast, it's going to be above normal. It is pretty remarkable how uh, some areas of the northeast have been quite warm all the way through the uh, first part of this year. It's been hard to find, uh, you know, freezing conditions in places like Boston and and uh, even part of New York City. Now, northern New England has gotten its uh, share and then some of the snowfall. But uh, in some other areas of the northeast, it's uh, still been quite warm. And that's where uh, things are going to be the warmest relative to average during this week. But I, I do think that we're starting to leave some of that real, real frigid uh, condition uh, a little bit behind us now, finally, here in mid-March. What do you compare this year to? We, you often refer historically to you know past weather events, uh, and we often in agriculture mark things by, oh, yeah, that year, that year was this way. It, what, what do you compare this year to so far when you look back? Well, it's hard to find a real comparison, to be honest mm-hmm. with you. Um, because uh, of the fact that there's there's such a wide area that uh, is so wet. Now, I do think, Mike, that the potential for for uh, prevented planted acreage is going to be pretty high this year. And now this maybe gets to uh, a little bit of a comparison to some other years. But again, uh, in in terms of the extent of, of wet ground, uh, it, it really is hard to find. Uh, back in uh, 2010, I know that that was a you know that was a, a real um, slow start to the season over oh let's say the northwestern half of the Corn Belt. That year there were more than two million acres that uh, prevented planting was uh, claimed. Now 2011 uh, was also uh, quite stormy uh, during the winter time, but again it it maybe wasn't. Um, you know, quite as widespread as things are now, because that was the year when the Southern Plains right. were just very, very dry. 
and uh, you had you know Midwest and Northern Plains conditions. Three million acres were uh, claimed for prevent plant that year. We'll be watching to see uh, how this year, this may be an historic year. We will see. Bryce, thanks for the update. You're welcome, Mike. Take care. DTM meteorologist Bryce Anderson. All right, stay with us. More to come here on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Throughout soybean farming regions, growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide from BASF. They know it's the most flexible and advanced solution of its kind for tough weed control, especially resistant weeds. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee. And this year, you can tap into our expanded season-long Grow Smart Rewards program. Get cash back for making the best agronomic game plan with Ingenia Herbicide and BASF's leading portfolio of soybean solutions. Want stronger performance and profits together with peace of mind? Go to IngeniaHerbicide.com to learn more. Grow Smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Soybean growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee so you can have true peace of mind. And you can tap into our expanded Grow Smart Rewards program and get cash back. Go all in today at IngeniaHerbicide.com. Grow Smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, we always look forward to our conversations with Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, and we should point out that he has earned the top spot as the most effective lawmaker in the U.S. Senate for the 115th Congress. That's according to a nonpartisan analysis conducted by the Center for Effective Lawmaking. Congratulations, Senator Grassley. Yeah. Now, uh... That's a good commercial. You got to tell the people I didn't pay you to say that. And also, <laughs> they may think they may think I paid for the study, but it was done by people I don't even know from the University of Virginia and Vanderbilt University. I don't know who they are, but it's quite an honor, and I'm very happy to be called the most effective legislator out of 100. Well, it is a high honor, and um, especially when it comes from a uh, nonpartisan group, uh, that, that says a lot. So let's talk about some of the issues you're working on. I want to talk about the, the tax extenders package that you uh, have introduced and, of course, the biodiesel industry looking at that very closely. Can you give us an update? I'm sure your uh, agriculture listeners know the Constitution that uh, all tax bills have to start in the House of Representatives. So we introduced this bill. It's very bipartisan between the top Republican and the top Democrat running the Finance Committee, and that's me and Wyden. And we put it out there because it's a consensus piece of legislation. It's not exactly what we want, because I wanted to have biodiesel have a seven-year phase-out, and that was satisfactory to the biodiesel people, and they were willing to buy uh, the idea that down the road they wouldn't need any 
government uh, tax credits. Uh, so, uh, but that can't be done. That's where we were headed before Christmas. So now we're having uh, a two-year extension of uh, 26 uh, tax incentives, including biodiesel. It would also include the tax credit for cellulosic ethanol, uh, things like that. So I won't go into what all 25 or 26 are, uh, but they would extend them for the two years, and then we would have uh, an opportunity uh, to get a longer-term program that would probably do away with some of the extenders. It would probably make some of them uh, permanent law, and uh, some of them, uh, probably would be uh, 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 modified to some extent. How do you feel about its chances? Very good, because we have had tax extenders, I'll bet, off and on over a period of 25 years. Uh, in fact, at one time we had about 53 or 54, but like I said, for these 30, we're going to review some of them, make them permanent, do away with some of them, modify some of them. So we probably have done that to about 25 of them already. But uh, there's a lot of planning that goes into businesses on the fact that these have been extended over a period of uh, maybe the last 25 years. So it's legitimate that we extend these. What kind of a timetable? Is it on the schedule? Uh, it's uh, The timetable is going to be decided by the Ways and Means Committee of the House of Representatives because, as I said, we can't uh, bring anything up in the Senate without having a tax bill from the House. All right. We're talking with Iowa Senator Charles Grassley. What's your reaction to the, uh, the story last week? Uh, it looks like we have more evidence now showing uh, how EPA handled the uh, the small refinery exemptions for the RFS and seemingly uh, went to, kind of went their own way as far as rulings and justification on that. I kind of had some suspicion that Pruitt wasn't a straight shooter, but I think the evidence that came out last time proves that, that he massaged <coughs> certain processes within the uh, EPA that gave... Uh, unwarranted uh, exemptions to refineries that didn't uh, justi- weren't justified to have them. And I guess my only answer is I have confidence in Wheeler straightening things out. Now, maybe a year from now, you might raise the same question with me, and I'd say Wheeler didn't do it the way I had hoped he would do it or the way I had confidence he would do it. But right now, I have a certain amount of confidence that he's going to do it in the way according to law. Do you think they're going to be able to get E15 summer sales approved in time? Yeah, uh, I, I believe so. It'll be up kind of to the to the uh, deadline uh, because it's got to be done by June the first. But I believe that they're that they're pushing it f- uh, so it can be done. All right. What can you tell us about? Uh, efforts to get something done on immigration as far as ag labor is concerned? Uh, it's got to be done uh, writing on some appropriation bill because you bring up um, let me start over again. What you question me about is relatively non-controversial compared to most immigration bills 
But when you bring a bill like that up on the floor of the United States Senate, you're going to get every radical amendment uh, attached to it, and you'll never get what you want to accomplish done. So we trying to put on, on an appropriation bill and, and get it done, and I'm in favor of doing that. I want to hit a number of topics here before we run out of time. What about what are you seeing as the administration says they're close to getting things rolling now, get the clock started on USMCA? Is there enough support to pass it? Maybe not right now, but there will be. But I think the president's missing a chance to move things along in Canada and Mexico by not taking off the tariffs. And I'm going to encourage the president to do that and i hope that farmers will call the white house and say uh you've got a good deal you say it's a good deal mr president take the tariffs off so we can move it through mexico and canada and then i think that'll put pressure on the united states to get it done by the way on trade we're going to have lighthizer before the uh finance committee tomorrow to go over uh strengthening the WTO because it's a process that takes too long and there's got to be some changes made but we'll also probably bring up China and US Mexico Canada yeah what are you hearing on China are you optimistic something's going to get done there I know you've urged uh, the administration not to uh, you know not to go with a uh, watered-down deal you you want a strong deal yeah, I think what I've heard from Lighthizer so far, he's our negotiator. Uh, we've heard that uh, that things are working out uh, the way we want them, except for enforcement. But that's the key, because we've had agreements with China in the past. They didn't live up to them. So an enforcement mechanism is very necessary if we're going to have any credibility in the, in the otherwise uh, good agreement. Lots of opinions, lots of reaction to the Green New Deal. Tell us what you think about it. Um, First of all, global warming is a real thing. We know it because the temperatures have gone up. But what they are proposing is totally unrealistic, like doing away with cows. I mean, just think how anti-animal agriculture that proposal is because of methane human beings create methane you're going to do away with human beings too the other thing is what they want to accomplish on global warming is pretty simple the united states with all the things we've done through putting more electricity being generated by natural gas because of fracking we have plenty of natural gas what we're doing on alternative energy with wind and i'm the author of the wind energy tax credit we get 38 percent of our electricity in iowa from wind what we're doing on solar all other alternatives uh and we've reduced our greenhouse gas emissions down to the 1992 level so if they want to reduce uh do more about greenhouse uh, uh, emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, then we got to get China, India, Indonesia, and Brazil to do what we're doing, and we're setting the standard for the rest of the world, just have America continue to do what we're doing. And one final note, uh, infrastructure. Will we see some action on infrastructure this year? 
before I uh, go to infrastructure, what I just said about greenhouse gas emissions and the Green uh, green New Deal, it's pretty much uh, socialism. And we can see while socialism is working in Venezuela, we surely don't want that for Iowa. Yes, we'll have an infrastructure bill uh, if we can get together between three committees of the United States Senate and we can finance it. But I, uh, I think that's uh, a possible, but not a sure thing. Wow. I would have thought that would have been the easiest one for you to both sides to come together on. Well, it is if you can get together, but that's a big if. But it is probably one of the most bipartisan things we can get done this year, if it can get done. But even that's a challenge, yeah, even if even if it is the most bipartisan thing out there. All right. Senator, as always, thank you for your time. And, again, congratulations on the award. Appreciate it. Okay. Goodbye, sir. Take care. Iowa Senator Charles Grassley. So that kind of sums it up, doesn't it, right there? The most bipartisan thing on the table is probably infrastructure, and he's not sure they can get together and get that done. Wow, that shows how tough it is to get anything through Congress these days. All right, stay with us. We're going to get more reaction to uh, the news of how EPA handled those small refinery exemptions and also uh, where we go on E15, getting it done by this summer. Brian Jennings with the American Coalition for Ethanol joins us next here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Powerful, effective, proven, tough, consistent, reliable. A lot of adjectives can describe a herbicide's weed control, but one only applies to Liberty Herbicide. Superior. Liberty Herbicide has no known resistance in row crops, more convenient application flexibility, and excellent control of key weeds, all backed by the Liberty Weed Control Guarantee. Learn more at liberty.basf.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And welcome back. Joined now by Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. Late last week, we got uh, more information on uh, how EPA uh, uh, was doing business under the former administrator, uh, Scott Pruitt, when it came to granting those small refinery exemptions to the RFS. Brian, what was your reaction to, I guess, what was you already suspected, but you now have more proof of? Yeah, great to join you, Mike. I think that's an accurate description. We all, or many of us, I should say, suspected that Scott Pruitt did something very different during his time as administrator. And because they were claiming sort of confidential business information, we weren't able to discover that. But this new court filing by the Advanced Biofuels Association does does confirm those suspicions that, that Scott Pruitt changed the criteria, that he uh, effectively, um, with the stroke of a pen, changed the law in, in, in a way to, to grant these waivers. And, you know, it might be instructive just to remind your listeners that small refineries were able to get exemptions from the renewable fuel standard if they could prove disproportionate economic hardship. 60 small refineries in the United States, and in the past, from 2013 to 2015, uh, 43 of those refineries asked for a, for a waiver, 
and about 20 of those received those waivers. But under Scott Pruitt and the way he changed the, the criteria for granting these, um, in 2016 and 2017, 49 of the 60 refineries that are small asked for a waiver, and all 49 got one. Um, and, and that's a big problem, of course. The assumption is it'll be better under uh, Wheeler, but do we know that for sure? I mean, how do, what do we know about or think we know about how he's going to handle them? Well, we, we know that um, Andrew Wheeler worked on Capitol Hill, and I've always subscribed to the theory that if you helped write the law, you're going to have more respect for the law. So I do have some hope that Mr. Wheeler is going to handle this differently. Um, you know, specifically, how is Wheeler going to address the 37 refinery requests that are pending for the 2018 uh, RFS, the, the waivers that they've sought? We don't know. And we're, we're about to learn that because we think by the end of the month, um, Andrew Wheeler is going to, or EPA, I should say, is going to rule on some of those requests for 2018. But I guess my advice to him would be don't lower the bar the way Scott Pruitt did. Don't throw um, the disproportionate economic hardship criteria out the window the way Scott Pruitt did. I mean, the, the court filings seem to indicate that EPA said we're going to grant these waivers whether a refinery can prove disproportionate economic hardship or not. So they effectively rendered that provision meaningless. And I would hope that, that Andy Wheeler is going to get back to the rule of law. Any realistic chance of getting those gallon, lost gallons back? I think there is, but it's going to be a slow and painful process. Um, as you know, Mike, because you've covered this issue very well, under the law, if a refinery gets an exemption, the ethanol or the biodiesel that they were supposed to blend and their petroleum products gets reallocated to the other refiners so the total volume doesn't fall back or fall down. Um, when these exemptions were granted by Scott Pruitt, the 2.25 billion gallons of renewable fuel that was waived for these small refiners was not blended back into the system, so to speak. The re other refiners weren't required to reallocate it or to, or to take that on. We've filed a separate lawsuit um, from the Advanced Biofuels Association lawsuit dealing with that. Um, and I think if we were to ultimately win that lawsuit, it would be something where EPA in, in dribs and drabs would probably add that volume back to prospective um, you know, years for RFS compliance. But I don't think we would get it all back in one fell swoop. All right. What? How are you handicapping the race to get the E15 summer sales approved by June 1st? <laughs> well, people blame or accuse me of being a little bit of a pessimist. So I, I just I have a hard time being honest with you and your listeners, Mike. I have a hard time seeing that EPA gets this rulemaking done by June 1st, given that it's March 11th given that the rule is still at the White House, which is a good sign, but it's going through interagency review, given that the rule is not yet out for public comment, given that the rule is, is sort of being bogged down with this other RIN reform proposal. Um, and, and I'd be glad to be on your show on June 1st and, and eat crow and tell you I'm wrong, but I just, 
I have a hard time seeing EPA getting this done by June 1st. Um, having said that, they've promised they would. Um, so we'll see. And it sounds like they have some plan B uh, sort of discretionary enforcement uh, options that they're considering in the event they don't get that done. Yeah, and then you got the legal challenges there as well. Do you know what's in the proposal? Do you have any idea what's in the proposal? We 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 believe we know some of what's in the proposal because we've been engaged with EPA on the on the reed vapor pressure issue for E15 for months and months and months. And what the agency is likely to roll out is two or three options for interpreting the Clean Air Act to allow E15 to get a waiver for uh, of the reed vapor pressure limitation on gasoline during the summer months of June 1st to September 15th. And they'll ask for public comment on sort of which approach makes the most sense. We feel confident that the various approaches that they will outline uh, will pass any legal test. As you alluded to, there will likely be a challenge by refiners of, of this rule as well. But we, we think it'll get done, and, and E15 will be used year-round. Looking forward to that. All right, Brian, as always, good to talk with you. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Brian Jennings, CEO of the American Coalition for Ethanol. That wraps it up for today. Thanks for joining us here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day, everyone. Soybean growers are going all in on Ingenia herbicide. Now BASF is going all in on Ingenia growers. We're so confident in the performance of this solution, we're now backing it with the Ingenia herbicide weed control guarantee so you can have true peace of mind. And you can tap into our expanded Grow Smart Rewards program and get cash back. Go all in today at IngeniaHerbicide.com. Grow smart with BASF. Always read and follow label directions.